Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a glass of white sangria. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a green apple soju, and on this week's episode, we are continuing our deep dives into international cases by looking at the tragic details of Korean Air Flight 858. Korean Air Flight 858 was an international flight originating in Saddam International Airport, now Baghdad International in Baghdad, Iraq. With planned stops at Abu Dhabi International Airport and Don Mueang International Airport in Bangkok with a final destination of Gippo International Airport in Seoul, South Korea. The aircraft operating this flight was a Boeing 707 with 16 years of flight time, having accumulated 36,000 flying hours. What started out as a routine set of international flights ended with the death of over 100 people at the hands of the North Korean government. The story starts on November 12, 1987, when two North Korean agents, Kim Song-il and Kim Hoang-hoo, traveled from Pyongyang, North Korea, to Moscow, the capital of the then Soviet Union. From Moscow, they went to Budapest, Hungary, and stayed there for six days with a North Korean agent. On November 18th, the pair traveled to Vienna using forged Japanese passports. They purchased tickets that would take them from Yugoslavia to Baghdad, then Abu Dhabi, and then finally Bahrain. On November 27th, they received a time bomb from two guidance officers. They arrived in Baghdad on an Iraqi Airways flight and waited for Korean Air Flight 858 to arrive. They boarded the flight and placed the bombs above their seats. They left the aircraft at the Abu Dhabi airport and attempted to fly to Jordan. On November 27, 1989, Korean Air Flight 858 left Baghdad, Iraq at 11.30 local time. During the second leg of the flight, the aircraft was carrying 104 passengers and 11 crew members. Around 2.05 p.m. Korean Standard Time, the bombs detonated, and the aircraft crashed into the abdomen sea. Shortly before the crash, the pilot relayed the final message, quote, we expect to arrive in Bangkok on time, time and location normal, end quote. All 115 people on board were killed. Of those 115, 113 were South Koreans, including young people who were returning home after working in the Middle East. While the crash was in progress, the culprits were attempting to escape. They had issues with their travel tickets, so they headed straight to Bahrain with the goal of getting to Rome, Italy. However, while in Bahrain, their passwords were identified as forgeries. They realized they were about to be arrested, so they both ingested cyanide that was hidden inside of a cigarette in a suicide attempt. Kim Sung-il was pronounced dead at the hospital while his female accomplice survived. The crash was investigated and determined to be an act of terrorism. On December 16, 1987, Kim Hyun-hyu was transferred to South Korea. 
She claimed to be a Chinese orphan who grew up in Japan with no connection to the attacks. This was doubted as she had attacked an officer in Bahrain, and the cigarette she used was connected to other North Korean agents apprehended in South Korea. During testimony in the United States Security Council, it was realized she was brainwashed by North Korea to believe South Korea was a puppet state that was filled with poverty and corruption. Choi Young-jin represented South Korea, and he stated, Kim began to realize she was told lies about South Korea and then, quote, threw herself into the arms of a female investigator, end quote, and confessed to the bombing. In Korean, she said, quote, forgive me, I am sorry, I will tell you everything, end quote, and said that she had been, quote, exploited as a tool for North Korean terrorist activities, end quote, and made a detailed and voluntary confession. Kim was able to share more of her background and how North Korea trains its operatives. In Kim's case, she was chosen by the Workers' Party of Korea and trained in a number of languages. Three years later, she was educated at a secret and elite espionage school run by the North Korean Army, where she was trained to kill with her hands and feet and to use rifles and grenades. Training at the school involved enduring several years of grueling physical and psychological conditioning. In 1987, Kim was ordered to detonate a bomb aboard a South Korean jetliner, an attack that she was told would reunify her divided country forever. In January 1988, Kim announced at a press conference held by the Agency for the National Security Planning, the South Korean Secret Services Agency, that both she and her partner were North Korean operatives. She also said that the order for the bombing had been, quote-unquote, personally penned by Kim Jong-il, the son of North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Il-sung, who had wanted to destabilize the South Korean government, disrupt its upcoming 1988 parliamentary elections, and frighten international teams from attending the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul later that year. Kim was subsequently sentenced to execution for the bombing of KAL-858, but she was later pardoned by the president of South Korea, Ro Tae-woo. He stated, quote, the persons who ought to be on trial here are the leaders of North Korea, end quote. And he continued by saying, quote, this child is as much a victim of this evil regime as the passengers aboard KAL-858, end quote. The attack occurred 34 years after the Korean Armistice Agreement that ended the hostilities of the Korean War on July 27, 1953. Before we go into details about the conflict between North and South Korea, Jenny, what are your thoughts on this crash? It's so scary. I think any time you hear about an act of terrorism or a plane crash or an act of terrorism on a plane, it's really scary and I think that is why a lot of people don't like to fly. It seems really senseless what happened. And it's really interesting to hear what Kim had to say about how she was brainwashed into thinking that the attack would reunify the countries and hearing about her training. It's almost like something from a movie, hearing about someone go to like an elite espionage school, hearing about how you're trained to kill someone with your hands and your feet. That's intense, uh, to say the least. I think it's really fascinating. And of course, it's something horrible that happened, but I kind of feel like good information was gained from it. I think that the president of South Korea at the time did handle it well. I think she 
was also a victim of the North Korean leaders and I would say evil regime. I would agree with him. This is not a story I had heard of. So I thought it was pretty interesting to learn more about. What are your thoughts? I definitely agree with you. I think that this really exemplifies some of the horrors that people talk about when they refer to North Korea. I think that in recent years, people have made it kind of a joke when they talk about North Korea in a lot of ways. They emphasize, oh, this is how North Korea is so different than the United States. They're not allowed to wear jeans. And it's like, well, the major problem with North Korea is not that they don't wear Western clothes. It's the history of terrorism and the different ways that they work to really try to destabilize South Korea, especially. But of course, they have become a threat to other countries in that region, especially Japan. I definitely agree that stories like this definitely add to people's hesitation with flying, because this is not something that you can predict or even try to avoid in a lot of ways. Of course, since the 9-11 attacks, there have been a strong emphasis on like airport security and making sure that things like this don't happen. But you never know what a hostile foreign government is going to try to do. You had over 110 people killed simply because the North Koreans don't like the South Koreans. And that's sad. And the fact that a lot of them were young and they were looking forward to seeing their family again after being away just makes it even sadder. I definitely agree that she's a victim. I think that it's interesting that like the South Koreans were so patient and compassionate with her that they gave her the opportunity to learn and grow and really change because they definitely could have taken the opposite approach and just said, well, you're a terrorist. You killed over a hundred people. We're just going to throw the book at you and not care. But they clearly took an interest in learning about her story and really being able to use what she shared to understand more about how North Korea is operating, how they're training people, so that they're going to be able to take that knowledge and hopefully come up with methods to prevent this type of attack from happening again. This case is one example of the events that happened during the conflict between North and South Korea. Once a unified country, North and South Korea soon became fractured and has not maintained a consistently peaceful coexistence. While we are not going to cover every event in this complicated relationship, we are going to look at the history of the Koreas, what caused their split, and some significant events in this geopolitical quagmire. North and South Korea formed the Korean Peninsula, and starting in 1910, the peninsula was occupied by Imperial Japan. The peninsula was divided into North and South regions at the end of World War II on September 2, 1945. On August 24th, the Soviet Union established a military government 
after entering Pyongyang. In response, the United States established the United States Army military government in South Korea on September 8th in Seoul. Though the joint control over the Korea started off diplomatically, this quickly changed as the Cold War started. In North Korea, the Soviet Union supports the Korean communists. At this time, Kim Il-sung became a national political figure. South Korea was staunchly anti-communist, and Syngman-ri emerged as the leader for South Korea. The U.S. took the issue of the increased hostilities within the Korean peninsula to the United Nations. This led to the formation of the United Nations Temporary Commission on Korea, or the UNTCOK, in 1947. The Soviet Union did not allow the UNTCOK to operate in the North. The UNTCOK held a general election in South Korea on May 10, 1948. The Republic of Korea was formed on August 15th with Sigmund Rhee as their first president. In North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was declared on September 9th. Kim Il-sung was named as prime minister. Both the United States and Russia had exited the Korean Peninsula by 1949, though the U.S.-Korean military advisory group stayed to train the Republic of Korea's army. Both North and South Korea considered themselves to be the legitimate government of the entire Korean Peninsula. This disagreement has never been resolved and ultimately led to where all territorial disputes go. War. On June 25, 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea and quickly overrun the country. In September, the United Nations, with the leadership of the United States, intervened to defend South Korea and pushed the North Koreans to China. This caused China to enter the war on behalf of the North Koreas. An armistice ended the fighting on July 27, 1953, that restored the original boundaries between the two countries. While the armistice led to a ceasefire, but not a peace treaty, it did lead to the creation of the Korean Demilitarized Zone, the DMZ, which serves as a buffer zone. On six different occasions, North Korea has announced that they would no longer abide by the armistice. These were in 1994, 1996, 2003, 2006, 2009, and 2013. Although the war had ended, over 750,000 people were displaced. This all for everything to remain the same. Tensions escalated in the late 1960s with a series of low-level armed clashes known as the Korean DMZ conflict. During this time, North and South Korea conducted covert raids on each other in a series of retaliatory strikes, which included assassination attempts on the South and North leaders. On January 21, 1968, North Korean commandos attacked the South Korean Blue House. On December 11, 1969, a South Korean airliner was hijacked. During preparations for U.S. President Nixon's visit to China in 1972, South Korean President Park Chung-hee initiated covert contact with the North's Kim Il-sung. On July 4th of that year, the North-South Joint Statement was issued. 
The statement announced the three principles of reunification. First, reunification must be solved independently without interference from or reliance on foreign powers. Second, reunification must be realized in a peaceful way without use of armed forces against each other. Finally, reunification transcends the differences of ideologies and institutions to promote the unification of Korea as one ethnic group. This did not end tensions between the two countries. When Seoul was chosen to host the 1988 Summer Olympics, North Korea tried to arrange a boycott by its communist allies for a joint hosting of the Games. This failed, and the bombing of Korean Air Flight 858 in 1987 was seen as North Korea's revenge. The end of the Cold War brought economic crisis to North Korea and led to expectations that reunification was imminent. In December 1991, both states made an accord, the Agreement on Reconciliation, Non-Aggression, Exchange, and Cooperation, pledging non-aggression in cultural and economic exchanges. They also agreed on prior notification of major military movements and established a military hotline and to work on replacing the armistice with a quote-unquote peace regime. In 1998, South Korean President Kim Dae-jung announced a sunshine policy towards North Korea. Sunshine policy was aimed at mitigating this group in economic power and restoring lost communication between the two states. U.S. President George W. Bush, however, did not support the Sunshine Policy and in 2002 branded North Korea as a member of an access of evil. Continuing concerns about North Korea's potential to develop nuclear missiles led in 2003 to the six-party talks that included North Korea, South Korea, the U.S., Russia, China, and Japan. In 2006, however, North Korea resumed testing missiles and on October 9th conducted its first nuclear test. The June 15, 2000 joint declaration that the two leaders signed during the first South-North Summit stated that they would hold the second summit at an appropriate time. It was originally envisioned that the second summit would be held in South Korea, but that did not happen. South Korean President Ro Moi Hong walked across the Korean demilitarized zone on October 2nd, 2007, and traveled on to Pyongyang for talks with Kim Jong-il. The two sides reaffirmed the spirit of the June 15th Joint Declaration and had discussions on various issues related to realizing the advancement of South-North relations, peace on the Korean Peninsula, common prosperity of the people, and the reunification of the Koreas. On October 4, 2007, South Korean President Ro Moi-hang and North Korean leader Kim Jong-il signed a peace declaration. This document called for international talks to replace the armistice, which ended the Korean War with a permanent peace treaty. The Sunshine Policy was formally abandoned by the new South Korean president, Lee Moong-bak, in 2010. Since the end of this policy, the diplomatic relationship between North and South Korea can be best described as hot and cold. As of this writing, the current president of South Korea has called for the United States to redeploy tactical nuclear weapons if North Korea attacks. The United States has rejected this proposal. North Korea is currently led by Kim Il-sung's grandson, Kim Jong-un, 
and it continues to be a hermit country led by a dictator with nuclear ambitions. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the complicated relationship between North and South Korea? This is so, so complicated to say the least. This is really something like I did not learn about in history class. Of course, like you hear about the Korean War and World War II, but I've talked about my education before and maybe I'm sure I'm not the only one that didn't learn as much about this. I wanted to mention too, I, for a book club that I'm in, I recently read The Island of Sea Women, which is about women on an island in South Korea through like World War II, like pre-World War II to like modern times. And I did not know that South Korea had gone through so much violence during and after World War II. It's really, I think, upsetting to see Countries have to suffer for how many decades now because of other countries, basically, like sticking their nose in to things. But also, I guess, were the Japanese colonizers or was it just like the imperialism? What's the right word for that? So I would say both, right? We refer to it as Imperial Japan, and they were definitely colonizers in the East, similar to. Great Britain. So I feel like a lot of these issues stem from that. And the Korean people are innocent, in my opinion. So to see how that 100 years later, basically, to see how that affected things is really upsetting to me. Of course, it's not to excuse anything that these got like the North Korean government has done, because we've said today and we've said before in episodes about North Korea that what they're doing is deplorable for its citizens and it's so sad to see people be displaced to see people live in poverty to see people hungry to see people kind of have their human rights taken away and to have to just obey a dictator and probably feel hopeless and like maybe there isn't much they can do i know that there is a lot of brainwashing like we talked about earlier not just of the like North Korean spies, but I think of the North Korean people in general, you hear a lot about how the West is really bad. And then how South Korean people are bad as well. I don't know. I don't know if this will ever, ever get resolved. I think it would take a lot, a lot to fix it, but I'm hopeful, but I'm not holding my breath. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. I am not holding my breath when it comes to a peaceful reunification between North and South Korea. And honestly, I don't even know if that's really the best policy for them, right? Because at this point, they are such unique countries that reunification might not even be the best way forward, right? I think that sometimes we think about it in a way of well, you know, you guys are so similar in a ethnic fashion. Why not just come together? But you have almost a hundred years of history of being separate countries, being ran separate ways. And, you know, we talked about brainwashing, although in this case, Kim was able to really release herself. We don't know how simple it would be for the rest of you know, North Korean citizens. And also, 
how will the South Koreans really feel about the prospect of reunifying with the country that has caused so much uh, damage and hostility? One thing with um, that that I do want to note is that according to a 2017 Korea Institute for National Unification study, 58% of South Korean citizens uh, responded that unification is necessary. And of those, 14% said that we really need unification, while 44% said we kind of need reunification. And when they were asked the question of, do we still even need unification if North Korea and South Korea could peacefully coexist, uh, 40% agree and 32% disagreed. So, there is a significant portion of South Koreans that feel like they need to be unified. I do wonder what the stats would be for North Koreans and how they would feel. Obviously, they live in a vastly different countries with not as many freedoms. So, you know, I guess it would all depend on which country's governmental policies would, you know, be in charge. I think that this really reminds me of other places around the globe, especially, you know, some countries within the Middle East that just seem to have friction that can't be solved. And they're both trying, could be trying to work towards it. But like we described, they have a very hot and cold relationship. And I think that as long as North Korea continues to want to be a nuclear power, it's going to make it really hard for them to have a peaceful coexistence because, you know, you're always going to have that fear of what if these bombs are turned on our citizens? How do we protect our citizens? And how do we protect the people that we have alliances with? If North Korea were to develop a nuclear bomb, it wouldn't just be South Korea that's in danger. You have Vietnam, you have Japan. And how would they feel about South Korea possibly kowtowing to North Korea? I don't think they would be too happy about it. I do wish that this topic was taught more in schools. As you were talking about, like you didn't really learn about it. And I think that that's one of the biggest gaps that we have in like history classes and just social sciences classes in general, is that since it's very U.S.-centric, a lot of these major conflicts don't get talked about. And then when something major happens with them, for example, like Russia invading Ukraine, people, of course, they're going to have opinions, but they're not as well-versed as they really should be. And what started the conflicts, the history of countries. And that's stuff being happening between North and South Korea right now. I'm glad you brought out that poll because I was actually, as you were talking, I was about to Google it to see what the South Korean public interest is in reunification. And I find that really interesting. And I think, Del, you mentioned this earlier, how sometimes... I think in the West, we do kind of look at North Korea as a joke. And if we knew more about it, we probably wouldn't. I don't know about you, but I feel like in like the 2000s, I feel like Kim Jong-il was like a big joke. It, like I feel like in South Park, they might have made fun of him. And I feel like in a lot of like popular culture, there was like a lot of jokes about him. But like, 
I mean, as a kid, I didn't understand any of that. And I'm sure the adults involved laughing at that didn't really understand any of it either. So it's interesting, again, how sometimes we kind of nose around in people's issues and then back off. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And that continued with Kim Jong-un where... Do you remember the Sony hack that happened because they had released a film basically making fun of him and in order allegedly to get back at them, they released a bunch of like negative things about Sony. It was some like pay issues that were involved and how they were seemingly underpaying people allegedly. But Again, that's just another example of like us not taking them seriously and thinking that like, oh, okay, it's whatever. It's just North Korea. We don't have to take them seriously. We don't have to view them as a threat. They're a hermit country and they're this and then that. And it's like, they're still a sovereign country that is funded by China and has access to weapons. Like we shouldn't take them lightly. The bombing of Korean Flight 858 is an example of state-sponsored terrorism. According to Arizona's Department of Emergency and Military Affairs, state-sponsored terrorism can be defined as acts of terrorism conducted by governments or terrorism carried out directly by or encouraged and funded by an established government of a country or terrorism practiced by a government against its own people or in support of international terrorism. While historically most countries used traditional warfare as a way to harm or hinder the sovereignty of a rival country, this practice is expensive and has a high risk of nuclear war. In order to circumvent the high cost and dangers of traditional warfare, many states have turned to terrorism to instill fear and interrupt the functioning of rival nations. This is usually done by funding, training, and protecting terrorist organizations that operate within their borders. Terrorist organizations and their state sponsors have created events that have killed hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people displaced. The United States maintains a list of known state sponsors of terrorism. Countries can be removed and re-added if terrorism sponsorship continues. There are currently four countries listed. Cuba, North Korea, Iraq, and Syria. While that is the official list from the U.S. Department of State, the list of countries that have been accused of supporting terrorism and funding terrorist attacks include far more countries. One of the main countries accused is Iran. Former U.S. President George W. Bush called Iran the, quote, world's primary state sponsor of terrorism, end quote. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was instrumental in funding, training, and supplying Hezbollah, a group designated as a, quote, unquote, foreign terroristic organization by the United States Department of State and likewise labeled a terrorist organization by Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Iran provides support for Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. From 2000 to 2004, Hamas was responsible for killing nearly 400 Israelis and wounding more than 2,000 in 425 attacks, according to the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. From 2001 through May of 2008, Hamas launched more than 
3,000 Kwazam rockets and 2,500 mortar attacks into Israel. During the 1980s and 1990s, a wave of kidnapping, bombings, and assassination of Western targets, particularly American and Israelis, occurred in Lebanon and other countries. These attacks have been attributed to Hezbollah and also include the 1983 Beirut barracks bombings, the Madrid airline office attacks, the 1985 Copenhagen bombings, bombings of the Israeli embassy in Argentina, the 1996 Cold War Towers bombing, and the 2012 Burgas bus bombings. Pakistan has also been accused of state-sponsored terrorism by India, Afghanistan, Israel, the United Kingdom, Poland, and the United States. Pakistan's military intelligence agency, the Inter-Services Intelligence, or ISI, has often been accused of playing a role in major terrorist attacks across the world, including the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States, terrorism in Kashmir, the Mumbai train bombings, the Indian parliament attacks, the Rathra Nazi bombings, the Hyderabad bombings, and several uh, terrorist attacks in Mumbai. Jenny, what is your opinion on some of the facts that we laid out about state-sponsored terrorism? This is something I definitely didn't know too much about. So this is like an episode of education for me, and hopefully it is for some other people and they're enjoying it. But when we hear about something that sticks out to me, I think is like the number of attacks and casualties and rockets. And it's just mind blowing to think about this is like everyday life for people to have to deal with 3000 rockets and 2,500 mortar attacks, like in their country and like near their home. When you see all of these numbers laid out, I guess it does just make terrorism feel more real. And of course, it is like a real thing. I think every adult is aware of it. But to hear all of it, it's just so sad. And to see, I guess, like how fragile some like governments and leaderships are, it's, it's scary. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. It's one of those things where I think that the image that people have in their head about terrorism are these just outside groups that everyone hates and no one is helping to finance or anything like that. And countries sponsoring terrorism really goes against that grain, even though it's just as dangerous as any other type of terrorism. And you can see from all the different examples that we list, and that list is definitely not exhaustive. State sponsors of terrorism, Iran, Pakistan, all the other countries that do it, they do it so that, like we said, they are harming rival nations and they are doing it with the support of people that have no care in the world for the freedoms of other people. They tend to be very isolationist in a way, very nationalistic in their beliefs. 
And they're definitely extremists that you would hope that no country supports. But as we can see, that's not the case. I think it was interesting, especially when it came to Iran, that there was a divide in whether they should be considered a state sponsor of terrorism with the United States and Israel pretty in lockstep with each other saying yes. But some countries of the European Union were disagreeing. And I definitely wonder if that's more a function of who's being attacked and the fact that they're not being attacked, which is leading the EU to think that. Because if you have a country that is funding terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah, I think that it should be very easy to call them state sponsors of terrorism, especially when you consider the fact that in their constitution, they have a line that says death to America, death to Israel. If you don't consider that a massive threat and a massive statement that is related to terrorism, I don't know what you would consider state-sponsored terrorism at that point. One of the major differences between North and South Korea is how the countries are governed and the authoritarian nature of North Korea, which is in stark contrast to the democratic South Korea. Authoritarianism is a political system characterized by the rejection of political plurality, the use of a strong central power to preserve the political status quo, and reductions in the rule of law, separation of powers, and democratic voting. The political science Juan Lins defined authoritarianism as possessing four qualities. One, limited political paralysis which is achieved with constraints on the legislator, political parties, and interest groups. Second, political legitimacy is based on appeals to emotion and identification of regimes as a necessary evil to combat, quote, easily recognizable societal problems such as underdevelopment and insurgency, end quote. Third, minimal political mobilization and suppression of anti-regime activities. And lastly, ill-defined executive powers, often vague and shifting, used to extend the power of the executive. Scholars tend to identify authoritarian political leaders based on certain tactics, such as politicizing independent institutions, spreading disinformation, aggrandizing executive power, squashing dissent, targeting vulnerable communities, stoking violence, and corrupting elections. Authoritarianism is marked by quote-unquote indefinite political tenure of the ruler or ruling party, often in a one-party state or other authority. The transition from an authoritarian system to a more democratic form of government is referred to as democratization. According to a 2018 study, most party-led dictators regularly hold popular elections. Prior to the 1990s, most of these elections had no alternative parties or candidates for voters to choose. Since the end of the Cold War, about two-thirds of elections in authoritarian systems allow for some opposition, but the elections are structured in a way to heavily favor the incumbent authoritarian regime. 
Hindrances to free and fair elections in authoritarian systems may include control of the media by the authoritarian incumbents, interference with opposition campaigning, electoral fraud, violence against opposition, large-scale spending by the state in favor of the incumbents, permitting of some parties but not others, prohibitions on opposition parties but not independent candidates, allowing competition between candidates within the incumbent party but not those who are not in the incumbent party. According to a 2019 study by Sergei Gariev and Daniel Traisman, Authoritarian regimes have over time become less reliant on violence and mass repression to maintain control. The study shows instead that authoritarians have increasingly resorted to manipulation of information as a means of control. Authoritarians increasingly seek to create an appearance of good performance, conceal state repression, and imitate democracy. Authoritarianism is a necessary component of fascism. While they are not the same, scholars agree that all fascist regimes start with authoritarian rule and then gradually fall into fascism. This is most exemplified with the authoritarian regime of Adolf Hitler in Germany during the 1930s and early 40s. Some current examples of authoritarians are, as we mentioned earlier, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Nicholas Maduro of Venezuela, King Salman of Saudi Arabia, Ali Khamenei of Iran, Xi Jinping of China, and Vladimir Putin of Russia. There are many other examples with over 50 countries considered to be controlled by an authoritarian. Jenny, what are your thoughts on authoritarianism, and do you think the United States will ever become authoritarian ruled country without a doubt like the worst form of government the most hurtful most unfair corrupt my heart goes out to people you know living under these regimes because i can't imagine not having all of these freedoms and you know as much as people in america complain about you know not trusting the government or not liking the government it's nothing compared to a lot of these other countries where we can at least say what we want and vote and have some confidence. Again, like it's hard to even imagine, but it's a reality for a lot of people. And to hear how it's changing from like violence and intimidation to just misleading people is really frightening. And I think that kind of goes into the second question that you asked. Do, do we think the U.S. will become one? I don't think so. But I'm not gonna lie, like I get kind of worried because of the state of the country. I think there are a lot of current politicians that do just want total control and want to enforce their views on everyone. But they're and their supporters would never consider themselves as fascist or authoritarian in any way. But based off of these examples that we gave of what authoritarian government looks like, I mean, I think that we do face that in the United States. I mean, spreading disinformation, that has been a huge talking point, I would say, like since the 2016 election, targeting vulnerable communities, the trans community and the LGBT community 
is being targeted so heavily throughout the country to the point, I mean, it's, I think it's clear that some of these politicians just want these people to not exist. Stoking violence, I think our former president, Donald Trump, was guilty of that. And then corrupting elections. I mean, there's like controversy with the election with George Bush and Al Gore all those years ago. And I mean, there was a lot of controversy with who won the election, the most recent election. And so we're seeing people kind of like allowing their supporters to go in and like intimidate people at polls and then like saying they want to go in and like count the votes themselves because they don't trust the people doing it. It's a scary time, I think, in the U.S. for a lot of groups of people. Um, and I'm curious to hear what you think, Del. Yeah, I I mean, in general, of course, having a country controlled by authoritarian or fascist or any system that doesn't allow for freedom and democracy, and that includes freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom to criticize uh, the government. You know, any citizen within those countries are definitely at a disadvantage. When it comes to the United States, I don't think that we would ever fall under full control just because of the way our system and the way our constitution is set up. It would be very difficult. I think the closest we could come to that is some military takeover. But again, I think that's very unlikely. I do think that there are some politicians that, because they think that's what people want to hear, they feed into this really fascist viewpoint, and they don't take stock of what people actually want, which for the most part is to be left alone. And one thing that authoritarian leaders don't do is leave their citizens alone. They try to control every aspect of a citizen's life. And unfortunately, on both sides of the aisle, the political aisle in the United States, you have politicians that in one way or another want to control other people, whether that be what they think, how they talk, how they act, just in general, what they believe. The United States is set up in a way where I think that our political process moves slowly so that we don't become a country essentially ruled by authoritarian or ruled by group vote for things in a lot of ways. And I think that's good. But when you have politicians that advocate for policies that will harm a significant portion of the population, when you have a political party that wants to do things that will disadvantage the poor and other minority groups, I think that you have a problem in general. And when you have a party that shows open support for people who believe in fascist ideals, I think that is a party that needs to take stock of their policies and who they're electing as their leaders and really make a change because they're going to make it extremely hard for themselves to be elected in a legitimate way when they continue to promote things that will take freedoms away from any one person, but especially a group of people. And, you know, being 1% of the population doesn't mean that 
other people can trample on your rights. Like, that's not how the United States works. And I think that this upcoming election is going to be really interesting because I think that's what the major battle is going to be. Are we going to accept politicians that want to limit the rights of other people? Or are we going to reelect someone that may not be the best option, but it's likely a better option than the other side? Yeah, I agree with basically everything you said. It is kind of like the safe choice. And I'm not looking forward to this election. It's just so stressful. But uh, I don't know. We got to exercise our right to vote, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And yeah, it's one of those things where I'm super political, right? And so a part of me is excited in a way because I think that the clash between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis is going to be really interesting because Ron DeSantis, for the most part, really modeled himself as kind of Donald Trump light or Donald Trump with a much more policy focused approach. But he, of course, doesn't have the strong personality and personability that Donald Trump has. So it's going to be interesting in how they're going to navigate that. There's been a lot of talk about them not sharing a debate stage. And honestly, that would be the most disappointing thing for me because I really want to see how they handle each other head to head. I think that it would be, a again, a very fascinating thing to watch. And I mean, on the other side of the 2024 elections, of course, Biden is running for re-election. But you also have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that's running against him. And so... I mean, not saying that this would happen, but wouldn't it be a fascinating thing if the incumbent doesn't win the primaries? Like, (laughs) just the possibilities of that and how that would change the structure is just, uh, it's like a thousand different branches that you can go off of. But we'll see what happens as we get closer to the election and really find out more about how uh, Trump and DeSantis are going to respond to each other. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, uh, the battle between them. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Korean Air Flight 858. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.